Well, good morning, everyone. I appreciate you being here um, to hear about Arab Edge. Uh, my name is Brent Moody. I'm a dermatologist and a Mohs surgeon in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, this is kind of like homecoming week for me. I, I trained in St. Louis for seven years in my medical training. So those of you who are from all over the country, I hope you get a chance to sort of see some of St. Louis. It's a really neat city and, and get a chance to explore while you're here. Um, today we're going to talk about Aravedj. Uh, and just to start off with, I will tell you that it is indicated for the treatment of adults with metastatic basal cell carcinoma or locally advanced basal cell carcinoma that really isn't candidates for surgery, radiation, or maybe has failed those treatments previously. And I do need to disclose that I'm being compensated by Genentech to be here uh, and that what I'm going to present to you today is in compliance with FDA guidelines. So the first thing I want to start with with this drug is the boxed warning that's part of the label. And it basically has to do with fetal exposure to the drug. To date, we don't have any reports of fetal exposure to the drug. So we don't have a female patient who uh, was either given the drug while pregnant or became pregnant while taking the drug. But based on the mechanism of action, we have strong reason to believe that this would be teratogenic and perhaps fetotoxic. And that's just based on the pathway that this drug targets. And we're going to talk about the pathway shortly. But the pathway is very important in embryogenesis. In humans, but really in a lot of different species, it's the pathway that tells us to make two of things. So as we start off with this primitive little notochord in utero, this pathway is what tells uh, to make two eyes and two ears and two halves of your cleft palate. So if something interferes with this pathway, and we know this from experimental models and some animal models, you end up with a lot of midline defects. The, the, big, the big word is holoprosencephalon, but it's midline defects. So just be aware of that. I usually tell folks that for female patients, if you treat them like an Accutane patient, you should be okay. And as, as dermatologists and dermatology Practitioners were all familiar with isotretinoin and, and managing the pregnancy issues there. So this is not new, new territory for us. For men, the recommendation is spermicidal condoms. Uh, the, um, for, for women, you want to do that for seven months after stopping the drug, and for men, for two months. So that's sort of one of the main things you, you want to know about uh, as far as a safety warning. So we just talked about this pathway, and it's called the hedgehog pathway. And it's called the hedgehog pathway not because it has anything necessarily to do with those little things that run around in my backyard, but because when this pathway was manipulated by scientists back in the 1980s in fruit flies, the fruit fly hair pattern made them look like little hedgehogs. So that's how it got its name. Um, and like I said, it's critical in embryogenesis but really doesn't have a whole lot of activity in adults as, uh, as far as uh, other than skin, hair, and, and probably the oral mucosa as well. So why is this pathway important for basal cell carcinoma? Well, about 90% of sporadic basal cell carcinoma, so the garden variety basal cell carcinoma that you're going to see next week in your clinic, in your practice, 90% of them have a defect or a problem in this pathway. 
and pretty much 100% of your Gorlin or your basal cell nevus syndrome patients have a problem with this pathway. And there's two proteins that are involved, and you can sort of see the little schematic there on the screen. One is patched, and we'll say patched is my left hand, and one is smoothened. And when patch binds to smoothen, you don't have cell replication. Things are sort of turned off. If anything breaks that binding between patched and smoothened, cell, the cell turns on and makes cells in an unregulated manner, and that's sort of the, the hallmark of cancer. And that can either because you have a problem that patched isn't working properly or maybe smoothened isn't working properly. But in most basal cells, we've got a patched issue. So what this shows uh, on this slide is you can see there's smoothing by itself with no patched in the picture. And you see that little thing at the bottom of the screen called GLEE, that's a transcription factor. That's what goes from the cell membrane into the nucleus to tell the cell to make new cells. So when patched is not in the picture, smoothing releases GLEE. And then this schematic shows uh, the drug Aravedge is represented by that little purple thing that looks kind of like a Hershey's Kiss, um, sort of binding smoothing. So it kind of takes the place of patch. I mean, it's binding smoothing, and smoothing is not releasing glee. So it turns off cell replication. So that's the end of basic science. If anyone has questions about that, you can grab me later and we can go through that. And now we'll sort of jump into some clinically relevant aspects of basal cell carcinoma and where this drug fits in the treatment of basal cell carcinoma. So you can't be in a derm practice for more than about a half a day without starting to see basal cell carcinomas. About three million basal cell carcinomas will be diagnosed in the United States this year. So it's just ubiquitous in a dermatology practice. The vast majority of basal cells can be treated with how we've always treated basal cells. You can do electrodesiccation and curatage, you can do a surgical ellipse, you can do my favorite thing, Mohs surgery, but just some sort of either surgery or destruction, really superficial ones you can treat with topical therapy. So most of them can be treated the way we have typically treated these cancers. But uncommonly, the basal cell will just kind of get away from, get away from us and get away from the traditional therapies. And that's when we have to start thinking about other options. So just to kind of uh, develop this concept of what is a locally advanced basal cell carcinoma. For a lot of cancers, the staging is sort of well-defined. For instance, melanoma. When you diagnose a patient with melanoma and you review the pathology report, you can gain a lot of information about the cancer from that pathology report, right? You're gonna look at the Breslow, you're gonna look at the mitotic rate, ulceration, regression. But if you just biopsy a basal cell and it comes back and says, you know, basal cell carcinoma nodular type, basal cell carcinoma infiltrative type, until you actually look at the patient, you really don't get a whole lot more information. So this idea of how do we stage a basal cell carcinoma is actually a work in progress, and it's something Genentech's kind of working to, to help push uh, us in the dermatology community to define, well, what is a locally advanced basal cell carcinoma? So this, this here, just to orient you, it's kind of a close-up photo, but this is a shoulder. You can see here's a neck, and there's sort of the arm coming off. So this is a really a large tumor. So no matter what you would do with traditional therapies, it would be really difficult 
You know, certainly if you could think about surgically resecting that, but that's going to have a lot of morbidity for that patient. I mean, there's going to be functional impairment. This cancer is probably going to be involving, at a minimum, fascia, most likely some of the skeletal muscles. Um, potentially, it could be into the joint space. So surgery for this would be a really uh, large and morbid procedure for this patient. And then you could think about radiation. Well, that'd be an extremely large radiation field. I mean, that's not impossible, but certainly not easy. Uh, and then you run, run the risk there of replacing this non-healing basal carcinoma with a non-healing radiation wound. So again, this is one I think any of us walking in to see this patient would recognize this is not the run-of-the-mill basal cell that we see 20 of a week. This is a little outside the norm. So, and they're saying that sort of size, you know, size is one of the things that make you think about what is an advanced basal cell carcinoma. Again, this, uh, another example to orient you, that's forehead and there's scalp back there. This is again a pretty good size one but also you think about extent of invasiveness in these scenarios. I have done MOS in these scenarios, and when I remove this cancer uh, using MOS, many times I have to strip the periosteum, or that little tough fibrous uh, layer right over the bone, and that might have cancer in it. And then I'm stuck with a big decision. You know, do I assume the cancer hasn't got into the outer table of the skull? Has it got into bone, yes or no? So a lot of times you end up sending these patients to ENT and they have to sort of grind down the bone. So it ends up being a fairly involved procedure. We, we take what, what I love about Mohs surgery, which is you, an outpatient procedure that's very safe and effective and you're just sort of making it much more complicated. So again, extent of invasiveness. And then difficult to treat locations. Again, I think everyone can appreciate that's the helix of the ear. But in this instance, there's something there, there's something there there, there, but look particularly right there, I mean the entire tragus is involved, this little sulcus here uh, between the cheek and the ear, and I can pretty much guarantee you that this cancer, when that much of the tragus is involved, is going back down into the external auditory canal. I mean, I, there's just no way it's not there. So again, a difficult to treat location is one thing we may consider when defining this idea of a locally advanced basal cell carcinoma. Um, and they're saying another thing to think about is recurrent. So here's this lesion here. Uh, there's really nothing you can, no way you can look at that and say, well, that's a recurrent cancer, but you just have to have the history that that had been treated before. And you can see this gentleman's got a post-surgical ear. He had a, a run-in with a surgeon, maybe Mike Tyson, but probably a surgeon on the ear. Um, as far as metastatic basal cell carcinoma, that is really rare, fortunately. Uh, and it's something that in the dermatology world, we usually don't manage. Once it gets to that stage, it's sort of in the realm of the medical oncologist and maybe the radiation oncologist. Um, and then prior to Arabedge's approval, there really was no FDA-approved therapy for metastatic basal cell carcinoma. The outcome in those patients was universally poor. The treatment would be kind of whatever your local medical oncologist sort of cobbled together because there really weren't good sort of standardized treatments. The most common places you get basal cell are there listed on the screen, you know, lymph nodes, then lung, then bone. Um, finally, you get sort of metastatic lesions to the skin. 
We're going to talk a little bit about metastatic in this lecture, but not much, because it's not just, it's not what we do. So I want to talk about this trial. It was called the Aravance trial. And it is what led this drug to be approved by the FDA. Uh, I, I first became ex uh, involved with this drug back in 2009, where the, the research institution I work with, we were one of the phase two sites for this. So I got some early exposure to this drug. And I'll sort of show a couple things about this study to you. The first is that it was not very many patients, a total of 104. And the ones that are really pertinent to us as dermatologists are these 71 patients with locally advanced basal cell carcinoma. So that's a pretty small trial. And the relevance of that is you may ask questions. You may say, Brent, tell me about this aspect. And I don't have to say, look, I, we really don't know. And it's because our data set is not huge yet. Now, the company is working on expanding that data set. And there's some long-term trials underway. So hopefully in the future, I'll be able to come back and give you some, some better some better evidence on certain questions you may have. Um, the other point I'll point out is, in today's regulatory environment, getting drugs approved by the FDA is not a walk in the park. But the FDA did approve this with sort of an expedited approval because it was sort of an, such a novel way to approach this difficult condition. The end point, let me talk about the end points of the trial. The main endpoint was what was called the objective response rate. And I'll explain that in detail in just a couple of minutes. That's really important to understand the results by independent review. And what independent review means is not only did a, a local investigator like me, not only did we look at the uh, patient, but we would take photos and then an external reviewer would review the photos as well. So that was the the primary endpoint for the locally advanced. For the metastatic, the endpoint was based on what the radiologist saw on CT. Um, so secondary endpoints, overall survival, progression-free survival, duration of response, well, these are really important. And like when I do melanoma trials, one of our endpoints is overall survival because when you're dealing with cancer, I mean, that's very, very black and white, dead, not dead. And patients who have cancer, for the most part, don't want to be dead, okay? So that's why it makes sense. But in basal cell, that wasn't a great primary endpoint because these patients will have these things for a long time. It'll be huge, they'll be morbid, they'll be affecting the person's quality of life, but may not be a terminal event. So that's why it was not felt that overall survival made sense in this scenario as the primary endpoint. So the, the dose here, this is how the drug was done. Everyone got drug. This was phase two. It was not a placebo-controlled, randomized trial. So it was open label. Every patient got drug. And it's 150 milligrams per day until disease progression or unacceptable toxicity. So that's how the, the trial was designed. So let's talk about this response rate and how we determine that. Um, this cartoon here sort of shows how it was done. And it was so simple, it was almost elegant how simple this was. We looked at a cancer, we measured it, we gave the drug, and then we saw what happened and we kept measuring the cancer to see if the cancer shrunk. I mean, it was, it was actually quite, as far as an endpoint for a cancer trial, this was actually pretty straightforward. It makes good sense. Or if you had ulcerated lesions and the ulceration completely uh, responded. Same thing for the, the radiographic ones. 
the, the radiologist would, would measure those. So to be considered a responder, the tumor had to shrink by 30% or more. So tumor shrinks 29%, not a responder. 30% or more is a responder. And then within that group of responders, we would do some follow-up biopsies. And the number of biopsies and the location of the biopsies were left up to the individual investigators. I usually did five biopsies because I like doing biopsies and I was allowed to do up to five. Uh, and I usually tried to biopsy where I thought it was gonna be positive. I really wanted to make this drug prove its worth. Um, so of the responders, we had two groups, partial responders and complete responders. Partial responders where on that follow-up biopsy, the pathologist saw cancer. So even though the tumor shrunk by 30%, they maybe saw a little bit of cancer on the biopsy. So they were a partial responder. Complete responder were individuals where after the tumor shrunk, the follow-up biopsy showed no cancer. So again, fairly simple. Tumor shrinks 30%, you're a responder. No basal cell, complete response. Some basal cell, partial response. The characteristics of the patients in the trial, you can see here, um, median age 62. For the locally advanced, it was split basically between you know, men and women, about equal. In the metastatic group, there was definitely a skewing toward the men. Um, I, I don't know why that is. I sort of speculate that, at least in my practice and probably in yours, a lot of times when I'll ask a man patient, well, why are you here? And they'll say, because my wife made me come. You know, do you ever get that one too? I, I saw a guy actually uh, yesterday in clinic with melanoma who only went to the doctor because his wife forced him to do so. So I think men just tend to ignore things, but that's just sort of me speculating. Um, most everybody, before they were enrolled in this trial, had had some sort of therapy. And many of the enrollees had multiple different therapies. And you can see, you know, they had surgery, they had radiation, they had other therapies. And certainly, especially for the metastatic, everybody nearly had had something done first before they got in the trial. So to get in this trial, you kind of had to be really at the end of the line um, to, to get in the trial. About 20% of the trial patients were basal cell nevus syndrome patients. Having basal cell nevus syndrome in and of itself was not enough to get you in the trial. You're, the person's cancer had to have some of those other characteristics we talked about, meaning, you know, was not a surgical candidate, was not a radi radiation candidate. So, but 20% of them happened to have uh, basal cell nevus syndrome. So what is our response rate? The objective response rate was 43%. So what I want to talk to you about before we get into that, I want to show you one critical thing that is really going to help you understand when I do some case studies. Um, this issue here, scar tissue was measured as part of the lesion when assessing response. So when we measured the baseline cancer and then we did follow-ups, the number had to include the scar tissue. Investigators were not allowed to look and say, oh, that's not cancer, that's scar. So basically, anything other than normal skin was kind of assumed to be cancer. I mean, that's what was the net effect of that was. So understanding that we had to measure scar 
as defining response will help you understand the case studies. Otherwise, some of them don't make sense. Of the patients who responded, about an equal mix, half and half, half complete response, meaning no basal cell on follow-up biopsy, the other half partial response, meaning we saw some basal cell on follow-up biopsies. And the metastatic, about 30% of patients responded, and they were all considered partial responders. The mean duration of treatment uh, within this trial was about 10 months. Um, you see this number here gets to N of 138. There were some other smaller uh, sort of proof of concept trials that were done. Uh, they got the total number of patients up to about 138. But the uh, duration of therapy wound up being about 10 months. So why did patients quit of those patients who, who did stop? Uh, about, you can see from the number this year, about 10% had disease progression. So their, their cancer progressed despite being on therapy. Uh, the other 12% adverse reactions, so they quit because of side effects. Discontinuation patient choice, about 20%. And that can be anything. You know, when we do clinical trials, some people just quit. They're, they're tired of being in the trial. There's always going to be what we call a dropout rate in a trial. People are going to do it, and they're just going to, they're going to quit. Um, and one sort of interesting thing about this trial is to say, uh, let me draw a contrast. Let's say I'm doing a trial um, for a drug for metastatic melanoma. Well, the patient has no way to know whether or not they're getting better if they've got liver mets. You know, they're, they're kind of dependent upon having those MRI scans to see if the drug's working. Whereas this drug, you know, if the patient has a basal cell on their face, they can kind of look in the mirror and see. So I, you know, I think that patient choice, could have, that could have been part of it. I think some people maybe said, look, I just don't want to be in this trial anymore. Um, and then patients remaining on treatment, about half. So again, we're back to the boxed warning, just sort of reiterate that important point. Um, I tell, this came up, I saw a, a man and his wife two weeks ago, and, and she's still of childbearing potential, and so I sort of had this conversation, and I said, look, you know, it hasn't happened yet. And I said, you all don't want to be the first patients to experience it, and I don't want to be the first doctor. So we, we're, we're going through the, uh, the, she's going to see her gynecologist to do some birth control, and he's going to wear condoms. So again, this is old hat for us from our uh, isotretinoin. You know, check pregnancy status, highly effective form of contraception. Male patients, we talked about the spermicidal condom. Um, blood donation, it's advised you wait seven months. So if patients want to donate blood, just, you know, you sort of tell them that. Nursing mothers, we don't know. You know, we just don't know. Again, that's, you know, one of the hazards of having a small trial. And the other thing about clinical trials, especially the, like the, the AirVance trial, we're not going to enroll a pregnant woman in a trial. Pregnant women just don't get in clinical trials for, for drugs. So that's uh, one of the things that limits our knowledge about some of these questions. So you just sort of have to make your own decision about nursing, not nursing. I probably would advise against it because I'm cautious and, and you know, why, why take a chance? The adverse reactions are listed here. We're going to go through them in a little more detail. We've got some better slides on that. Um, and one thing I will uh, point out to you is they did notice amenorrhea in some of the patients who are, you know, premenopausal or that's, you know, 
still fertile before and then went through menopause while on therapy. So that may be something that if that's an issue, if you have a female patient who says, oh, I may want to have children in the future, this may be a conversation you want to have with them. Um, and if you, one thing in the oncology community, this is very common issue because a lot of the treatments can, can lead to fertility issues down the road. So if you have a patient who wants to be on drug but maybe wants to get pregnant in the future, you could refer them to uh, a gynecologist who specializes in this field. Um, most every community now has someone in the gynecology community who, who is used to dealing with this issue and they can talk to the person about their options. So let's look at the side effect profile because obviously if you're going to put a patient on the medication, that's something, that, the first thing the patient's going to want to know about is, well, is the drug going to help me or not? And the second thing they're going to want to know about is, well, what are the side effects? You know, what do I need to think about before deciding to be on this drug or to look out for while I'm on the drug? And so you kind of, they're, they're in big, big categories. The first category is GI stuff. Uh, and the, again, nausea, diarrhea, constipation, vomiting. So typical GI stuff. Grade one and two side effects are generally considered kind of mild. They require no treatment or some mild symptomatic treatment. Um, and then fatigue, uh, again, mostly grade one or grade two. In general, the trial patients and the patients I've had after the trial, after they've been on the drug in uh, many months, so four or five, six months, they, yeah, they're kind of looking a little tired. I don't know if they're just tired of coming to see me or what, but they're all functional. I mean, people are still going to work. They're still doing their, their normal stuff. So uh, again, the fatigue is usually pretty mild. The weight loss, about half or about 52 uh, patients or 40% had some weight loss. It's unclear if that's a primary product of the medication or maybe just because they've got some GI issues. Maybe they're not eating as well or it could be related to one other side effect we're going to talk about here in just a minute. Again, but these are usually manageable. I mean, we've got grade one and grade two. Um, <clears throat> let's, while we were talking about it, talk about the taste disorder. Uh, dysgeusia is an alteration in taste, or agusia is a loss of taste sensation. And that may be another reason if, if people lose weight uh, is based on that. That, uh, again, is not a quantifiable side effect. You know, I can't measure that. I just have to take the patient's word for it. Oh, the food doesn't taste the same, or now it tastes better now that I've stopped. Um, but it, it happens enough that I think it probably is a side effect of the, of the drug, and you just want to warn people about that. My experience with that side effect is it's been a late side effect. It's not early on. It's something that happens after three or four months. Um, muscle spasms and arthralgias. The muscle spasms you'll want to talk to your patient about and just sort of let them know because that's pretty common. You can see, you know, seven out of ten people in the trial had muscle spasms. So just let them know that's going to be the case. Um, they're kind of like a charley horse and they can be anywhere. They can be really any muscle group. Um, some people, they say they're, they're, you know, fairly significant and painful. There's no great treatment per se. There's lots of different things people have tried. Um, some people recommend muscle relaxants like uh, Flexril or Soma. I've heard some doctors say you can use a drug called Requip, which is for restless leg syndrome. One doctor told me that. Uh, another 
two doctors told me to drink pickle juice, so maybe just getting some more electrolytes. I don't, I don't know what the dose of pickle juice is, but you know, that's one thing uh, people have told me. The, the main thing about this, if the muscle spasms get bad, they can take a drug holiday, and usually they go away pretty quickly. You know, in a few days to a week, the muscle spasms have really resolved. So uh, that's sort of the, the ultimate treatment, is just have them take a drug holiday for a few days. When you restart, some get them back, some don't, some don't get it as much. So that's something you'll, you'll sort of figure out. And, and I find just by warning the patients that this is gonna happen helps a lot. That they know, okay, this is gonna, this potentially is gonna happen. Alopecia, grade one alopecia is sort of diffuse thinning. Grade two alopecia is what we would call alopecia totalis or complete loss of hair on the head. This trial um, primarily was done by medical oncologists, so they really didn't try to look at you know, body hair, axillary hair. So that wasn't, when, when you look at alopecia in a cancer trial, it's just gonna be the top of the head because that's what the oncologists look at. So you wanna warn them. Again, that's a little bit of a later side effect. It's usually after they've been on the drug, you know, four, five, six months or more. Again, it will grow, it will grow back when you stop therapy. So let's do some case, case studies. Uh, and this is where that idea of measuring scar will be important to help you understand that. So this is a 68-year-old female. And this was one of that first ones I showed you. Remember the, uh, the, the scalp there? And so there are her baseline. And here she is at week 16. I think we're going to have some blow-up pictures here in just a second. And she got the usual side effects. Muscle spasm, taste alteration, some hair loss, some GI stuff, eye swelling. I don't know what that's about. One thing when we do clinical trials, we have to kind of report anything anyone says while they're on the, the drug. You know, that's just part of what the FDA requires investigators to do. So who knows what that was about. Um, yeah, so here's a, a, a big picture. These little color dots here, that's just for the photo. We call that color balance in the photo. It has nothing to do with the trial. But so there's her, her cancer, week 16, and then we have a week 23. And so no basal cell cancer on her follow-up biopsy. So her tumor shrunk by 30% or greater, so she was a responder. And on follow-up biopsies, there was no basal cell, so she was a complete responder. And there's a, a nice picture of her scalp. Look here. See, that's what I'm talking about, the hair thinning. So there's her baseline in there, week 23. So that's, that's the kind of, that doesn't always happen, but you, you need to you know, sort of be prepared for and let the patient know. So here's a gentleman, uh, advanced basal carcinoma, uh, both on the scalp and the ear. Again, you can see multiple surgeries. You know, this didn't feel like he could do any more surgery. Felt not to be a candidate for radio, radiation. Uh, again, side effects. The side effects are the, these are gonna be the same side effects on every slide. I mean, they're the, the same ones. They're pretty, pretty typical. So here's his baseline. This is a scalp lesion. And again, so that tumor shrunk by greater than 30%. Um, so he was a responder. But if on biopsy you see a little basal cell, you're considered a partial responder. So again, he responded. And here in front of the ear, 
again. So you had tumor shrinkage. On the scalp lesion, he had a little residual basal cell. On the ear, uh, this one here, he did not. Again, so baseline, and there he is at week 24. This was a non-responder. And the, when, I, when I talked to our residents, you know, the, one of the questions I asked is, what is the main reason your patient does not respond to the therapy you prescribe? Anyone want to? You don't need it. They didn't do the therapy, right? You wrote them a prescription, they never bothered to do it. The noncompliance is the main reason our therapies fail. In this case, I'm, I'm pretty certain this person was taking the drug because they had all the side effects. So they got the side effects of the drugs, they were taking it, but let's just look at the pictures here. So there's baseline, and there's, you know, clearly that tumor is not resolved or resolving. So this may be one of those 10% of patients who have a basal cell carcinoma that does not have a defect in the hedgehog pathway. I mean, there are a few other pathways that can be uh, altered to cause cancer. So here's a non-responder, okay? This is where measuring the scar is important, because if you just look at these pictures I'm gonna show you, you're gonna scratch your head. Again, same side effects, okay? Um, so baseline, there's the tumor. This is kind of, there's the eye, there's, you see a little bit of eyelash there. So this is the forehead, you can see a little hair there. And week 24. So if you just look at the picture, you say, well, wait a minute, why is that a non-responder? That cancer looks much better than it did at baseline. And the reason this person's a non-responder is because if you measure in the longest axis, including scar, it didn't shrink by 30%. And that was one of the requirements to be reported as a responder. Here's a baseline on an ear. And again, it would just be, you know, the issue, did it shrink enough? And again, yeah, it's not so good in this picture, but you can kind of see, see the hair there? And then it's a little bit thinner there. I don't think this gentleman or this person had thick hair to start with. So metastatic basal cell, a partial responder, you can see this tumor here, and then it shrunk while on therapy. So that would be a partial responder there. And so that's metastatic basal cell. And then a non-responder, he's got shotgun mets throughout the liver at the end of treatment where the patient did die, you know, obviously much worse disease. So the, the dosing is 150 milligrams daily, and there's really no advantage if, you, you know, don't give it to him twice a day, don't do three times a week. I mean, the dosage is 150 milligrams a day. You can take a drug holiday if need be for side effects. Uh, with or without food, it does say in bold letters, do not open or crush capsules. This actually came up in one of my patients who couldn't swallow pills. Uh, and so I was able to find out um, that the issue is not so much the medicine won't work, but there's concern, like who's gonna be crushing those pills? So you got granddad who can't swallow pills, but his 24-year-old granddaughter who's pregnant is crushing those pills and maybe she gets exposed to the drug. So it's really a drug exposure issue. And a lot of oral oncolytics is what we would consider this drug an oral, by mouth, oncolytic or cancer drug, have that kind of warning uh, because of that issue. Um, again, we have the, the first and only approved hedgehog pathway inhibitor. We talked about this number and how we came up with that number. 
on, on these. And then Genentech came up with some ideas of how to decide you know, who might be an appropriate candidate. And they came up with what's called the select criteria. We'll work from the bottom up. You know, metastatic is pretty obvious. You know, there's really no other option. And then if you've got a cancer that, you know, does not seem to be amenable to surgery, it just keeps coming back after surgery. And there are basal cells that do that, despite, I think, well done surgeries, uh, it comes back. If, again, curative resection's unlikely, that is, you know, you maybe do surgery, but we're just not gonna get, get a cure, uh, or some sort of contraindication to surgery. If the idea is that, you know, we could do surgery, but it may not be in the patient's best interest. You know, maybe it's gonna be such a huge surgery that they're not gonna tolerate, or don't wanna tolerate. Again, we talked about location earlier. We talked about extent of disease, um, size greater than 10 millimeters. Um, okay, I, all the folks from Genentech have heard me say this before. I think that's kind of weak, to be honest. I mean, that's a pretty small basal cell in, in all of our practices. So they, they've heard me say that before, and, and, and they're gonna hear me say it again today. So getting the drug, I mean, let me sort of talk about one thing, just a practical thing that is from my experience. This is not a one-visit drug, in my experience. So patients don't come to see me and for the first time and walk out with this drug. I mean, I talk to them, I talk about it. Usually, this is a person that's gonna have a serious problem. This is not just some little tiny run-of-the-mill basal cell that you look at and you know within 15 seconds what you're gonna do. I mean, I'll be honest, you walk in, tiny little superficial basal cell, you know you're gonna curette that thing even before you get, you know, past saying hello to the patient. These are ones you're gonna to to think about and then I have a conversation with the patient, whatever family members are relevant, and then I give them the, the materials and say, read about this and think about it and come back and let's talk again. Gives them a chance because one, multiple studies have shown that patients only retain about 20% of what we tell them in an office visit. So you think you're getting all that information in and they just don't retain it. So I lay the groundwork at that first visit, I tell them to come back, read it, think about it, and we go over everything again. And I, that, I think that's a, makes sense in my practice. But once you've got to the point where you have a patient you want to start on therapy, it's actually fairly simple. I always sort of joke that it's easier to get this drug than it is to get Retin-A for a 36-year-old woman, okay? Um, the company will help you a lot. There's forms you can fill out. Um, you fax them to the company and they kind of take it from there. What I would suggest you do in your practice is maybe have like one go-to person. In my practice, I have a nurse, her name is Tina, and Tina is my AirVeg nurse. So she knows how to fill out the paperwork, any AirVeg questions that come in, she takes them, and she's just gotten experience with it so she knows how, how everything works. Uh, if you've not done these forms before, the first time you wanna do it, just call your local rep representative from the company and say, hey, you know, come walk me through how to do these forms. Uh, that's what I did and it worked out very well. And they're happy to do that. And so you send it in, they do all the benefits investigation, and then eventually the medicine is sent to your patient. So it's not, they don't just take it to a farm at local pharmacy, it comes from what's called a specialty pharmacy. But your company representative can go through all these details with you. I don't necessarily need to take all your time there. But getting the drug in my practice has not been that difficult. Most patients, I just fill out the form that 
Genentech has, and it's like you check a lot of boxes. One patient I had to write a letter for, you know, so you write a letter. Um, again, they've got all these various resources available to you. Um, and they'll do all this. Uh, Genentech's been in the cancer business a long time, so they're, they're used to getting these cancer drugs for patients. So again, the drug is indicated for adults with uh, metastatic basal cell carcinoma or locally advanced basal cell carcinoma who you might think other things might not work. And so hopefully I've been able to help define for you well, what is a locally advanced basal cell carcinoma and, and how might that change some of your, your thinking on that. Um, so that's the end of the, the slides. I'm happy to take questions if anyone has questions. And, uh, well, thank you. Enjoy St. Louis and enjoy the rest of your day.